reading Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the ex- that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burnt with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his command and keep his commandments let your ear be attentive to and at your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for for your servants that the people of Israel I confess my sins we are as Israelites including myself and my father's family have committed against you We acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws laws you, you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying if you are... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then then even if you if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as my dwelling name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in, in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Evening, everyone. Can you just stand there and hold that for me? (laughs) Pastor Charlie has been unwell for about three or four days. (laughs) Some of us would say he's been unwell for a lot longer. Um, He's had a nasty head and he's still got it, I think, a headache, um, something like that. It was in the throat, now it's in the head. So I said to him on Thursday, if you want me to speak, let me know. No, I'll be right. Friday morning. You want me to speak, I'll do it. No, no, I'll be right. Friday night. Oh, I'll wait and see. I said, you tell me in the morning if you're not okay. So we did. Yesterday morning, he said, I'll take you up on your offer. So here I am. And it's my pleasure to begin this series we're doing tonight on the book of Nehemiah. Um, And I'm going to pray. And then before I do pray, could I just point out that this happened in the 20th year of King. (laughs) Another 20. 
So I would like to say I'm going to make 20 points and I'm going to do so in 20 minutes. But that's not true. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. Thank you for our service so far and <clears throat> that wonderful song, Lord, of how we need you. Uh, Lord, that's it. As what else? Uh, open our hearts that we might receive more of you, understand more of you. And like your servant Nehemiah, be passionate followers, devoted to you, pleasing you. Um, we thank you for this man's life and story and what we're going to learn from it and through it. And we ask tonight that you'd be pleased by your spirit again to bless us by speaking to us, showing us your truth and how that truth applies to our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. We ask and pray in his name. Everybody said? The book of Nehemiah are the personal experiences of this man, Nehemiah. It's like his journal. Uh, it's uh, an insight into him as a person and he is someone who is deeply conscious that God is sovereign, God's in control and God is leading his life. He's deeply conscious of that and as a result he is fully devoted to him. Nehemiah is his personal testimony and particularly as you get towards the end of the book and particularly the last chapter, chapter 13, it reads just like his journal and it's God remember me and remember all the good I did and he's looking to God to bless him. While it is that, it's not just that, it's also God taking this man's life and experiences and through the telling of his life's journey, these experiences, it's still also indicating to us the objective acts of God, how God is at work in our world and how God is continuing the story of his people, Israel. That is also a focus of the book of Nehemiah that we'll come to as we work our way through. So let me put this in some sort of historical context and then... I would like us to work through this chapter. It's a very simple chapter. It's uh, simply got a information, an opening, and it's got an opening prayer. And in fact, let me encourage you to read through the whole book of Nehemiah. It doesn't take too long. And you will find a recurring themes. One of the themes is he was going to be a man of prayer. There's about 12 of them. 12 times you'll find in Nehemiah that he prays to the God of heaven. Something's happening and he prays to the God of heaven. This is um, just part of who he is and as we seek to follow Jesus that's to become a habit of our life that we are to be a people who turn to God first not last and that we are God dependent prayer uh, exercising followers of Jesus disciples of him well what's the history well a couple of hundred years before this um, in you don't need to remember the dates but round about 605, uh, around about then, over the next 20 years, uh, Babylon invaded Jerusalem three times, from 605 to 597 to 586. So over that 20-year period, they decimated the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, knocked the walls down, wrecked the village, the, the houses and everything else. It was a mess. And God's people had been scattered and captured and taken to Babylon as well as scattered to the nations. And God said that he would do that. As we read in chapter 1, it's, uh, God said, if you don't obey me, I will scatter you. And God has done it. But God also said, through his prophet Jeremiah, that it would only last for 70 years. So 70 years from the beginning, from 605, thereabouts, um, 70 years later, God was going to raise up another king who would set his people free and they would return to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild it. And that's exactly what happened. In 539, 
Instead of Babylon being the world empire, it was now the Medes and Persians. And in 539, in October, we know the exact date and time and everything else that's historically recorded. It's in Daniel chapter 5, if you want to read this incredible story. You know the Bible story, the writing, the hand on the wall? It's that story. The Medes and Persians are at the gate. The Babylonians are inside, King Belshazzar, and he's having a party and he's not caring less because he thinks he's invincible. And that night, God destroyed him. The city of Babylon was completely overrun by the Medes and Persians new king Cyrus and you can read through Ezra that Cyrus is in fact the king that God raised up to send God's people back to rebuild the temple and restore the city they started to do that in 536 when they got back they started but there was lots of opposition and we'd been been away for 70 years and other people had moved in and they didn't want to give up the land and didn't want to do it and so there were not a lot of them, 50,000 people or something. And so they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the people. And so it got delayed. God raised up some prophets like Haggai. You can read about him. He lives at that time to encourage the people to don't focus on your houses and your lives. It's focus on God and his priority and God will bless you. And through his ministry, the temple does get rebuilt, but it's not what it was. They had to use you know the burnt bricks and so the building is a little bit unattractive and it's disheartening and discouraging um and around about this time you know that king's gone cyrus has gone other kings have come in and then there's this king called xerxes in the persian empire xerxes is the guy who's going to marry a lady who is a book in the bible written about her and her name is esther well, Xerxes, the king, with his first vice, Vashti, they had another king. This, the complication ends there. It's Artaxerxes. He's the king in the book of Nehemiah. So you've got God doing stuff and the high levels of power in the Persian Empire. Daniel was there in the beginning. Then he raises up Esther. She's now the queen of Persia. And now you've got Nehemiah, who's about, you know what 50 years after that roughly that'll look um, where he is the cupbearer to the king to king Xerxes. what's a cupbearer well it's not what you would probably think he's not on domestic duties he's not the dishwasher he's not the butler he doesn't do table work it's an privileged privileged position the king would have selected him himself i'll go through some of that in a second pretty quickly but the cupbearer's primary job wasn't simply to taste the wine before the king drank it he did have to do that and there were rules and regulations he had to hold the cup in a certain way he had to take a ladle and scoop with the left hand and drink the wine just indicate to the king that it wasn't poison and then fill the cup and then give it to the king and he's got to hand it to the king in such a way that the king can take it without dropping it spilling it or doing anything else because that would be disgraceful that was not his main job but he would do that morning noon and night whenever the king wanted to have a drink the cupbearer would get it for him nice job always on call seven days a week 24 hours a day he would have had his own private room undoubtedly like daniel did um, and it's in the palace and he tells us in chapter one that is in susa which is uh, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, but it's where the Winter Palace is. That's nice. 
and we're told that this is happening in the month of Kislev, and we know that that's like mid-November to mid-December. It's heading wintertime in the Northern Hemisphere. So here is Nehemiah. His job is a cupbearer, and his main duty would have been to stand guard at the king's door into the royal apartment. And if anybody wanted to enter to visit the king, to see the king, to have an appointment with the king, it was at the discretion of the cupbearer that you got in. He could say no. Even the princes had to get permission from the cupbearer because the cupbearer was second to the king. He's quite literally the right-hand man. You can read a little bit of this background in Genesis 41 because there was a cupbearer, remember, with the story of Joseph. And there's a bit of information there for us. The king would have chosen the cupbearer. He would have selected a man who was, listen to this, wise as well as discreet. He's got to be able to keep secrets. He had to be consistently honest and therefore trustworthy. He had to be intellectually capable and emotionally stable. And if you're still qualified, you also had to be handsome because you couldn't be ugly in the presence of the king. You had to be emotionally stable because you couldn't be upset in the presence of the king. He would take that personally. And sometimes throughout history, that's exactly what happened. So here is Nehemiah, who does not return with the people on the various returns to Jerusalem. He chooses to stay in, Jeru in Susa, in Persia. And he has this high-ranking government job. And he's a man who's got a heart after God. Just like we have a prime minister who's got a heart after God. It's pretty rare in the world. It's okay to have, we have Christian politicians, but to have Christians at leadership level or at those high levels of government, it's a rare thing and it can be a great blessing. So please continue to pray for our prime minister. So here is Nehemiah, anyway, a cupbearer in the presence of the king and God has a job for him. Let me read through the words. So can we flash the Bible up on the screen? Let's leave that up and we'll work our way through that. These are the words, verse 1 of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. So the words, his journal, this is his writings. In the month of Kislev, as I said, late November, 20th year, I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, the NIV says, one of my brothers, <clears throat> probably literally, not one of my brothers as in one of a fellow race of Jews, because over in chapter 7, verse 2, he talks about Hanani, my brother, in the singular. So my guess is that Hanani is his actual blood brother. He came from Judah, Jerusalem, and some others were with him, some other men, and I asked them a question. For, Jeremiah, uh, for Nehemiah, all of this begins with him asking a very significant question. And his question was, how is Jerusalem? What's it like? The temple's been rebuilt. Are the walls rebuilt yet? Because they had attempted several times and had been discouraged through opposition and other means. And at one stage, the gates had been put back up and the wall was nearly up. But if you read down in verse 3, they report, they say, those who survived, the people who survived the exile are back in the province, but they're, just, they're in terrible shape. There's great adversity, there is great reproach, they're in disgrace, they're embarrassed, they're disheartened, and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire again, is the message. He's not talking about something that happened 150 years ago, he's talking about something that's much more current, that he was watching the progress of what was going on back in Jerusalem. 
And when Nehemiah hears that, because of his love for God and for God's people and for God's mission and cause in the world, he is just bottomed out. Verse 4, when I heard these things, I slumped down, he sat down. His legs gave way under him and he started to weep. For some days... I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven for some days. 24, hour, 24 hours a day and seven days a week, he had to serve the king. When's he doing this? When he's in his private room, when he's by himself. He lets himself go emotionally. He pours his heart out to God and he weeps. He's on his knees. And then when it's time, when the king summons him, he pretties himself up and he dries himself off and he puts nice clothes on and he goes back into the king and he pretends that everything is okay. And he does that for at least four months. Because when you go to chapter 2, verse 1, you'll find that in the month of Nisan is when the king finally asked him a question. That's four months later. So for about 120 days, roughly, maybe a bit more, he is a man who prayed, fasted, wept, asking God for the opportunity of open the door, Lord, and change the king's heart and let him release me so that I can go. He wasn't just a man who prayed about something. He actually wanted to get involved and to do something. And this is his prayer. Well, before I give you, get to the prayer, let me emphasize this. Why was the city of Jerusalem so important to Nehemiah, to the Jewish people? Well, for these simple reasons. It was the place of God's name. It was a city that God had chosen. And it's in a shocking state. So it doesn't look good for God. It's the capital of the land that God had given them. It was the center of the Jewish worship, the worship of God in the temple. And ultimately, Jerusalem, and the temple particularly, but Jerusalem was supposed to be a showcase for God himself, for justice and mercy and truth in the world. And it was in a shambles. It's God's name and reputation being dishonored in the world. That was what was driving him. And in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 5, God's judgment through the prophet says to the people of Israel, you know, 150 years ago, I'm going to destroy you because of your disobedience, your defiance of me, I've had enough, I'm removing you from the land. And no one will ask, how are you? No one will care about you. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 5. Now God is still at work in the world. He hasn't given up on his people while he is disciplined for their sin. He hasn't abandoned them and he hasn't abandoned his promises. He does the same with us. He does not abandon us. He sticks faithfully. <clears throat> and God raises up this man, Nehemiah, in a significant position and works in his heart. And Nehemiah asks the very question that 150 years ago God said no one's going to ask it. Nehemiah is now asking it. How is Jerusalem? How is it? Because God is raising up his people and he's going to achieve his purposes through them. That's why Jerusalem was important to Nehemiah. Well, let's look at his prayer. Uh, verse 5. <clears throat> like, <coughs> you've heard on numerous occasions, there's like an acrostic, ACTS, A-C-T-S. Excuse me. A stands for adoration. C for confession. T for thanksgiving. And S for supplication. Well, this one doesn't quite do that, but it goes pretty close to it. He certainly begins with, and we can learn from it, there are parts, dimensions to the prayer that he prays that we could learn from and benefit from. Verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love 
with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that he is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. His opening prayer is one of where he is turning his mind to who God is. He reminds himself of God's character, of God's nature. And he will come in a moment to claim the promises of God. But he begins his prayer with his adoration, with worship of the great God, the great God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who is faithful. You're loyal, you're reliable, you keep your covenant of love to the people who are in covenant with you, who love you and obey your commandments. Please listen, Lord. Please open your eyes and see what's going on, he's saying. And I love the fact in verse 6, he's the cupbearer to the mightiest king in the world. And as far as Nehemiah are concerned, he is the servant of the Lord God. Your servant. Not just the servant to the king. More importantly, I'm the servant of God. So too for us in our situations. We are his servants. If you name the name of Jesus, if you confess him to be your Lord and Saviour, wherever you are, you're his servant. You represent him. That's why it's important for you to stay connected with him, to be in him and filled with his Holy Spirit. Well, he prays to the God of heaven who is sovereign. He made heaven, cosmos, the world. He's in heaven and he rules from heaven. He's powerful and he keeps his covenant. One person wrote this, when facing a serious problem, and I'm not sure where we are at tonight, where you are at personally, but if you've got some serious issues going on and you're facing some difficulties, whenever you face a serious problem, it's always helpful first to fix your attention on God and on who he is. And then that will help you to see your issue, struggle, problem, in a different perspective. God is in control. God is mighty. God is listening and God is watching. And if you do that, then you'll probably experience what Nehemiah did. The more you focus on God and the more you learn about God, the more conscious you will become of your own sinful nature, of your own inadequacies, of your own faults and mistakes and foils. And that's exactly what happens to him. He turns from praising and honouring God to confessing. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We're in this mess, not because of opposition and not because of mighty armies. We're in this mess because we sinned. We got out of step with you, God, and we got off track. And you did what you said you were going to do. You disciplined us. And we're still reaping the consequences of that decision. He confesses his sin. He doesn't blame people who lived 150 years ago. He identifies with them. He talks about that we have committed and we did it against you. We acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, your decrees or your laws that you, Lord, gave to Moses. We've defied you. We've gone our own merry way. Just like David in Psalm 51. You know, it's against you and you only, Lord, that I have sinned. That's our primary focus. Where are we with God? And then he moves from worship and confession, asking God to forgive him, because at the end of the day, it's sin in our heart and life that stops God listening, isn't it? If I cherish sin in my heart, what? The Lord will not hear.
confession is so important. Honest, heartfelt, specific confession. And then verse 8 and following, he transitions to reminding God of his promises, reminding God of his word. He's obviously a man who read the word, who studied the, as much of it as he had at those times. Oh, and I forgot to tell you this. Because he's the cupbearer to the king, remember the story in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6, <clears throat> where Artaxerxes, no, sorry, Xerxes, yep, Xerxes, is, uh, can't sleep. And so he calls for his records to be brought in of all the wonderful things that he's done while he's been king, which is what they used to do. And the record was brought in and it's read before him. Nehemiah would have been having that experience of the king rehearsing and repeating previous exploits and previous statements and previous promises that had been given. Nehemiah was being educated in all of the things that was going on at that upper level of government, of the monarchy and some of that would have involved the story of Mordecai and of Esther and of Daniel and of God's promises so Nehemiah was a man who was exposed to God's word he says in the Lord to the Lord verse 8 remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses if you are unfaithful I'll scatter you amongst the nations verse 9 but if you return if you repent if you return to me and obey my commands then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Remember, Lord, you said that. If we are unfaithful, you'll scatter us. And you did. But remember, Lord, you also said, if we repent, if we turn back to you and obey you, that you will bring us back from wherever we are to the place where you have placed your name. That's the bit that Nehemiah focuses on. You said I'm claiming your promise. You're a God who is faithful. Do it. Parents don't like it when their kids come to them and say, you promised. But God loves it. God loves us to take his word and to take him seriously. You said. That's where my faith rests, and I'm sure that's where your faith rests as well. When I die, I have no doubt at all that the Lord will take me into his presence. Sounds rather arrogant. That sounds like a spiritual elite statement. It's not based on me at all. It's based upon him and what he said. He said that if I repent, if I believe, if I commit my life to him, if I acknowledge that he is Lord, confess and believe that God raised him from the dead, that he paid the penalty for my sin, that I am forgiven, and that everybody who comes to him, he never rejects, and that when we die, we go to be with him. He said it. I believe it. That's why I am so sure that's exactly what was gonna, is going to happen. And you know what? I often tell myself this, and I've told a few other people over the years. <clears throat> if I die and I'm not in heaven, then God's a liar. It's as simple as that. Because he said it. That's the sort of rock we need in our life, of taking God at his word and then resting very firmly upon it. God said, and he can't lie. He is truth itself. He speaks the truth. And that's where Nehemiah's coming from. You said, Lord, if we repent and if we return, if we obey you, you will. Well, verse 10, they are your servants and your people. You've already acted in their life. You redeemed them. And by your great strength and your mighty hand, you've made them yours. <clears throat> God has acted. 
verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. And then he asks for one thing, specific request. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man, the king. One thing, Lord, I ask is that you will give me success today for 120 days, morning and night. Great and awesome God, confess our sins. You, did, you acted in the world and you promised and now, Lord, it's time. We are repenting and confessing and returning. We want you to work. Grant this one request. Give me favour in the eyes of the king for 120 days. 240 times he prayed that. God was waiting for the right time. And there will come a time in chapter 2, you'll see the commit follow-up that Nehemiah gets caught out and God had worked somehow in the king's heart to actually protect him. So he confesses his sin. He presents his request. And notice that he says, give me success. It's okay to pray for that. God, help me. Help me to do this well. And Nehemiah actually believed it because over in chapter 2, verse 20, you'll find that um, when he is challenged by the opposition that is around Jerusalem still, his reply to them is, God will give us success. He's a man of faith who's fully reliant on God and so his request is certainly urgent, but it's very specific. Lord, give me favour in the eyes of this man. Please note, before I conclude, Nehemiah did more than weep and pray but he didn't do anything before he wept and prayed. Note that. He also made himself available eventually. So the questions. Are you available to God? Where are you with God and his purposes and his priorities? And for Nehemiah, it was the honour of God's name and reputation in Jerusalem. It was a shambles. And Nehemiah's heart was breaking for God and for the honour of God's name. And so he set himself about to seek God's face and to pray. He asked the questions of the returning people. He was devastated by the response that he received and he turned to prayer. And that's his pattern all his life through Nehemiah. He turns to prayer. He turns to prayer. He doesn't just pray, but he prays. That's one of the skills and one of the habits that we need to have as disciples of the Lord Jesus, to be a people of prayer. When was the last time you asked God for something specific in your life or in your work situation or in your ministry at church or whatever? Are you a praying person? When was the last time you asked God for something specific? What situation are you facing right now? that you can't solve by, solve by yourself like Nehemiah couldn't. But God can. And you need to talk to him about it and invite his intervention in it. Do you need success in something that you're engaged in? Now, why don't you ask him? Lord, grant me success in this endeavour. Nehemiah was certainly a man who believed, I don't know how this works, but Nehemiah believed that God was a God who can move the hearts of people. He can change the heart of the king. He can make the king favorably disposed towards you. I could tell you a story of a person as part of our church who at work was in a situation where their boss was cranky with them. The boss seemed to hate them and they prayed. 
And they prayed fervently. One day when this thing sort of exploded, that afternoon the boss calls them into the office and there's an apology given and there's reconciliation. They prayed and God worked and the heart of the boss was changed. Who is it in your life that you need God to move in? Pray for it. Ask it. Finally, let me say this. Nehemiah prayed effectively because he knew God. He knew God's character and he knew God's word. How can you know God better? That's a great question. How can you know God better? Well, there's two answers, which is really one. You get to know God better by knowing the Bible, reading the Bible, God's word. It talks about him. His, it's what he's like, and it, it helps you think his thoughts after him. And There's certainly that. And the Bible points us to a very special person, Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, study the life of Jesus. Read the Gospels. A person came to Jesus one day. <clears throat> well, it was the disciples, sorry. John 14, Thomas and Philip. Lord, he told them he was leaving and he was going to prepare a place for them. And Lord, we don't know where you're going. <clears throat> and he told them. And then they said, <clears throat> excuse me, Lord, just show us the Father, what the Heavenly Father, and we'll be satisfied with that. Jesus replied, have I been with you for so long, you don't know who I am? It's, if you know me, you know the Father. If you see me, you've seen him. We're the same. I mean, we're different. He's the Father and I'm the Son, but we are exactly alike. What is God like? He's exactly like Jesus. And if you want to know, to know what God is like, study the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful book, this remarkable man, your servant, Nehemiah, and help us to learn lessons from it that are going to shape and help us to become remarkable servants of you. Could you open our eyes to see truth? And Lord, I wonder what you've spoken tonight into our hearts. Nudge us to be a people who turn to you first who present to you our requests submissively, asking you to move in people's hearts and to change circumstances and to grant us success in your will, in your purposes. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask this in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.